0: Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Chaz Koch, the founder of LB Partners and a former co-founder of Investure, one of the original scaled OCIO businesses. Chaz has followed an atypical path from a decade as an allocator to a focus on stock picking, first building an internal direct team at Investure and then launching LB in 2019. Chaz opened and closed LB to new capital on day one and recently created a digital infrastructure index that trades as an ETF under the ticker BYTE. You can learn more about it at iodigitalindex.com. Our conversation covers Chaz's path to allocation, lessons learned at Uvimco, key aspects of successful manager selection at Investor, and his passion for and transition to direct investing. We close with the application of lessons to his investment process. Please enjoy my conversation with Chaz Cobb. Chaz, great to see you. Great to see you, sir. Why don't you take me back to your first investment work?
1: I mean, as a kid, I was a passionate baseball card collector. And so if I were going to somehow locate my very first investment work, where I was actually doing research and trying to understand how prices interacted with air quotes fundamentals, that would be it in the 80s and early 90s, which turned out to be a bubble for baseball cards. The key price input was something called Beckett's Baseball Card Monthly. That was sort of the Bloomberg of baseball cards. And it really was a a once-a-month magazine that arrived in your mailbox, and it had primarily a list of every baseball card that had ever been printed, and what it was worth if it was in mint condition, and how that compared to the prior month. And so I was obsessive about tracking, collecting, and managing my baseball card collection. So that would definitely be my first set of investments. My first stock purchases in my young teens were not well-researched, not surprisingly, I guess, but (laughs) included uh, GE and Microsoft and Cisco Systems and a company called Fiocall, which is a defense contractor that made boosters for the space shuttle, but also had a propulsion system for airbags and airbags were beginning to roll out. So I had a thesis that, oh, that's going to be a thing.
0: And so how'd that flow through to the beginning of your professional career?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would have said when I was 10 or 11 and all my friends wanted to be like a policeman or a fireman or a superhero, I wanted to be a stockbroker. I didn't know what that meant. (laughs) I just knew that it somehow involved trying to take money and turn it into more money. And that always seemed like a fun and remunerative Profession, If I could somehow pull it off. And when I went to UVA undergrad, I put myself on the investment banking manufacturing line. And I always joke that it's, it's a little misleading because investment banking is neither investing nor banking. But I found that out after arriving, so to speak. Obviously, investment banking has a great set of tools that it teaches you. But it certainly wasn't the destination that I wanted in the end. And I was there. I just started my third year of investment banking. I was in New York, and I got an email forwarded to me from my mom, of all people, and it was about a job opening at the University of Virginia's endowment management company, which is called Uvimco. And I I didn't know anything about it, except that the chief investment officer at the time was a guy named Michael Bills, who was the one professor from UVA who I'd done a pretty good job staying in touch with and was someone who I really admired and looked up to. And his background was he'd been at Tiger, the old Julian Robertson Tiger, for years and years. Had actually, I think, retired as head trader. And then I think he jokes that Julian made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And he went back to Tiger to be the COO in the late 90s. Um, and he had just retired from that when I met him at UVA as a professor. And so he was running the endowment. I picked up the phone and called him and basically said, I I see this job opening. What is it? And he said, we need to talk. And truly, within two weeks, I had a job offer. And it was an incredibly fortunate landing spot for me, both due to the fact that I went to UVA and love UVA, but really driven by the people who were there. In addition to Michael, the cast of characters there really influenced my life. From dear friend of mine Tim Davis, to Alice Handy, who was a longtime leader of Uvimco, who my story becomes entangled with for some some periods. Starting there, Hans West, just really wonderful people. So that's where my professional investing career began, and I would say that's where the passion for wanting to be a stockbroker really lasered in on saying, no, I, I want to spend my life trying to research and understand mispriced opportunities and how people uncover and get their arms around those and have the courage to have the conviction to ride through the ups and downs. And so so that's really where it began.
0: So vimco has this long history, both attached to Julian Robertson, Michael, of Virginia Mafia hedge funds, a lot of public equity, long short equity hedge funds. Where did you dive into that ecosystem in your time there?
1: When I took the job at UVA, I was telling the guys at the investment bank that I was leaving. And this guy, Paul, goes, oh, what are you going to do there? I said, well, I think I'm going to spend a lot of time on hedge funds. This is 2002. They have 55% of the portfolio in hedge funds. And he said, no, they don't. And I said, I think they do. And he said, I- I'm sure they don't. That's completely inappropriate and risky. Like nobody could actually do that. <laughs> and so I-, I believed him, to be honest. I was like, oh, I must have misread something. I got down there and they had 55% in hedge funds and it was going higher. Almost nothing in long-only and the rest in privates. And so, yes, my start was really we're going to get to know the best investors in the world. The best investors in the world are generally running structures where they can get paid the most, where they can have the most creative freedom and where they can attract and surround themselves with the best talent and the best investors. And that that moment really was hedge funds and to a lesser extent, private equity and venture capital. So almost everything I did from the beginning was fundamental long short equity hedge funds so you can picture the tiger structure the blue ridges of the world and then that evolved also i'd say to include long only funds that really took a differentiated perspective to the world so what has now become much more common to find a concentrated long manager who might only have 10 positions at that time was distinctly uncommon but that was also the kind of thing that would have fallen within my purview and you know I was 24 years old and getting to talk to the smartest investors
0: in the world so what did you learn from Michael Michael is
1: incredibly balanced he wants all sides he wants to hear all sides of a challenge of a risk he believes in people and he believes that Special people who put together special teams and really stay disciplined and focused have the chance to outperform. And I don't believe he just means that in the investment realm. I think he views that as in basically every part of life. And it just happens that in investing, if you can go hunt, find, and build relationships with those people, I think he believes that that is a pathway to long-term excess return. Obviously, he's gone on to build, I think, an incredibly successful second or third act, whatever we want to call it for him, around that
0: thesis. And so how'd you go about that process?
1: You know, when I was 24, it was the things that were handed to me. I walked in and very fortunately, it just happened that UVA had established a franchise, so to speak, in exactly what you were talking about. These very best, long, short, equity, fundamental managers in the world. From there. I almost had this sort of ignorant view in the sense of I didn't know what I didn't know. And I wasn't afraid of what I didn't know. And within two months, I was proposing a manager into the endowment that I had sourced with Tim and then ran the diligence basically on my own and ended up getting in the endowment and who today is a multi-billion dollar fund. And so my view was always just go, build your network Figure out sort of the nodes that go out from the first person you meet that should lead to five more, and those five should lead to five more each. And all of a sudden, you have a network. I'm actually very naturally an introvert and not extroverted, but somehow I managed to stumble into building great relationships on the one hand. And then on the other hand, I was extremely clear about what really investing meant to me not trading, not macro. And that allowed me to, I think, stay zoomed in and focused on a certain type of approach that allowed me to narrow the world. I really believe in the power of focus. And so by trying explicitly to not do everything, but to do a few things really well, I think we ended up being able to get our arms around most of the universe of people who thought the way that we thought. And endowments in theory have perpetual time horizons. How do you take that duration and empower investors to use it on your behalf. A lot of funds are fairly short-term, trying to pick quarters or events or trades or macro. And I often think that forfeits a big part of the competitive advantage that endowments have. So we stayed really focused on that long duration edge, and that narrowed the universe to a manageable size. and I think it allowed us to have a brand in that space that was differentiated.
0: So two of the names you mentioned, Michael Bills and Alice Handy, the leaders at Uvimco at the time you were there, subsequently both left and took over roles kind of in, call it the hybrid side between what they're doing and, and as a business. And I'd love to hear through your progression in both of those transitions.
1: I started Labor Day of 02 and basically Jan 1 of 03, Michael said he was leaving um, so I had moved to Charlottesville, been there three or four months. And the person who I sort of had attached my wagon to, <laughs> detached my wagon and said he was leaving to start his own business. And then a month later, <laughs> made worse, so to speak, by the fact that he took my best friend with him as his co-founder. So Tim Davis and Michael left to start Bluestem. I was extremely excited for them. But obviously, it raised questions for me about, well, what am I going to do, you know, 24, do I want to do this? What does it mean? And as I said, fortunately between Alice and Hans and Beth Snyder who was there at the time, I had some great mentors who stayed. Michael and Tim would go on launch Bluestim. My younger brother was officially their first employee. He was actually an intern for them. and so they went on to great success. And then Alice took over as not just president but as CIO. And she, Hans, Beth, they had a chance to really run with the endowment for a bit. But Alice really began to notice the friction that the governance structure at that time, which has evolved since then at UVA, was creating. And I think it was making it a very difficult operating environment. And if you know Alice, I mean, she's just one of the most wonderful, hardworking, ethical, trustworthy, intuitive people. And she just said, you know what, This we are not going to be empowered to execute this the way that we think we should. And I, Alice, have an opportunity to go basically do whatever I want. I think she could go be CIO of effectively any endowment that was without a head. And she had a conversation with Smith College where they basically said, we'll back you. Um, We'll become your first client. Why don't you go create this kind of OCIO, this outsourced chief investment officer model? And she talked to Hans and me about potentially joining her in that. And for us, it was a layup. I mean, I was 24, not married, no kids, got to be a founding partner in this college endowment management structure. And so we made this leap a year later. We launched a firm called Investure, at the beginning of 2004, end of 2003. And the mission of Investor really was to serve these incredible not-for-profit institutions that were big enough where their endowment had become a really core asset, but were not so big that running it in-house made sense. And so Alice's reputation, obviously, is what that business was built on. And sometimes in life, half the goal is just partnering with the right people and letting them drag you along. And that's really what it was for me with Alice and Hans and then Bruce Miller, who was our fourth partner who joined us right at the beginning. And I was 25 and just had an incredible opportunity to help build a business from scratch. My dad was very entrepreneurial. I would have never said that I have an entrepreneurial bone in my body. I was just someone who wanted to put my head down and work and think. And as long as I could do those things and feel rewarded for it, I thought I was going to be fine. And as soon as I scratched that entrepreneurial itch, I basically realized I can never work for somebody else ever again. (laughs) This is off to the races. like, there's no chance. I need this freedom. I need to be able to paint my own picture or paint alongside my partners. It was, there was just no going back from moment one.
0: So let's dive into the investment side at Investor. You're taking on this challenge in early OCIO. How did you think about structuring the portfolios? Our
1: thinking at that time was best ideas win, and we are not going to put tons of top-down structure onto it. We may, in the end, look at our bottoms-up collection of ideas and make some tweaks if it seems like we're missing big opportunities or taking certain kinds of risk. but In general, it's compete for capital. Opportunity cost is the bar, and ideas need to compete in against the next best idea. So, very bottoms up. And the way to differentiate, and for me, frankly, to enjoy it, was to sit co pilot with our managers from the diligence process on through when we were partners. And that meant if we were going into a meeting with a prospective manager, it might be that we spend three hours talking about one business and just the research, the competitive advantage, what the environment that they compete in looks like, how the value chain that feeds into it and then flows out of it evolves, what the implications of that are, how they think about cash generation, et cetera. And while others might think about portfolio management and beta and net and gross exposure. Those are things that were interesting to us. But our real angle was we're going to understand it as the investment itself. And so we're, we own a look through portfolio of these underlying businesses in the end. And so what matters the most is how those businesses are coming into our collective portfolio. If there is a strong PM who we're underwriting when She is just leading a three-person team. How does that change when she's leading a 10-person team where each of those 10 senior analysts now wants to have their own junior analyst? We want to understand who really knows the ideas, who's really doing the work, and where does that reside? So it was much more coming at it from the stock side, so to speak. And so for my first 10 years at Investor, But from the investment and portfolio standpoint, I led everything that really wasn't either fixed income or private equity and venture capital. I led or co-led with hands.
0: Did that bias towards focusing on the underlying research process of the managers and wanting to know who's doing the work lead you into any particular either style or structure of an investment management organization over others?
1: Yes, it definitely led us into concentrated, long-term oriented, hardcore fundamental investment firms. Stylistically, what I would say started out as long, short in one bucket and maybe long only in another. Those things began to collapse together for us. And I would also say even public private, you know, we were very early in saying that if the best investment idea you, hedge fund manager, are finding is in a private business, we're very open to that. And we'll help build in tons of latitude for that. And ultimately, that could sometimes put us at odds with other LPs. So we began to realize that our partners were not just the manager on the other side of the table, but all the people who sat in our seat. And I would say that increasingly led us to make a strategic decision to get earlier and earlier in the manager's life. A manager would come to Charlottesville, show up, and they would have this amazing PowerPoint deck. And we'd go through it. And then the next day, another manager would show up, and they'd have an amazing PowerPoint deck. And man, it really looked so similar to the one I saw yesterday, all the way down to like the way the bullets looked and how it was organized at the end. And I started to realize, you know what's happening is the Goldman Sachs's and Morgan Stanleys of the world are getting these guys in their cap intro department and they're creating their presentations for them, which it occurred to me what that really meant is they're building a marketing pitch around what sells maybe more than what is optimal for that fund manager or for our long-term returns. So I would joke that part of our job was to get there before the corrupting influence of Wall Street and see if we could help protect their vision. And so that became a big part of our research effort was we need to understand who the number two, three, and four are at these firms that we love, whether we're invested with them or not, and figure out the next generation is going to come from this person. And we want to have our relationship with them buttoned up years before they make the leap so that when they do, we can empower them to build their investment partnership in a way maximizes the 20 year return, not the 20 month business. And for a lot of managers, that's not going to be the right answer. They really are more interested in the business side, but that becomes its own filter. So I would say coming back to your question, yes, we became very interested in the purists, the people who said the number that matters to me is not my bank account. It's my 20 year net return. If that was the thing that woke somebody up in the morning, then they became very interesting to us. And that also totally changes the type of conversation you're going to have. The 20-year net return is really different than the 20-month business, but it's also really different than the 20-month gross return or 20-year gross return. So that opens up a whole new series of conversations we can have where as we were getting them earlier and earlier, we also wanted to play more and more of a true partner role I don't like the phrase limited partner. I understand that it's a legal construct, but our view was we're partners. We can be consigliere. We can be a source of strength. We have different roles for sure, but we absolutely want to play a role of advisor, protector, and of course, a more traditional LP money provider role.
0: I'm curious how you spent your time.
1: When we first started, I used to joke that Out of hundred units of my day, I would spend 10 units talking to people outside the firm, 10 units talking to people inside the firm, 10 units thinking about client stuff and 70 reading and thinking. And that evolved over time as the business became more complex. And also just as you know more people and more people, therefore, when I have calls on your time and, you know, we went from three or four people to 43 or 44 people. I would say more and more of the business needs took up my time. But my goal was always to really work hard to preserve that reading and thinking time. It's what gives me the most energy to keep getting after it. Reading and thinking, of course, you know, it breaks down into all sorts of things, whether you're reading manager letters or reading 10Ks or reading conference call transcripts or just reading the news. But I, that to me was the most golden time for me. And so protecting that at all costs became part of my life at Investor. And if you talk to other people there, they'd say I have this ridiculous calendar system where basically I made it look like every day was fully blocked off. <laughs> so that no, <laughs> nobody would ever schedule a meeting without coming and asking, are you actually busy or are you available? But you know, you have to do what you have to do in order to be effective. And owning your time is owning yourself.
0: So talk me through your transition out of Investor.
1: I was there 16 years, and I would have said that my job there for the first 10 years was find the best investors in the world, give them as much money as possible on the best, most supportive terms possible, and get out of their way. We were the biggest investor in Nomad, and we were a third of their capital. I think we were their first institutional client. They didn't even have $100 million. We went through a journey with them that was mutually beneficial. And I learned a ton. Those guys, Nick and Zach, have become legends, in my opinion, and quite well-earned. So that's my first 10 years there. I love it. But increasingly, I realize I would bet that if you looked at a $10 billion endowment in fiscal year 2021, it would shock me if they didn't pay at least $500 million in fees in fiscal year 2021. It wouldn't surprise me if it's even higher than that. And as I thought about that, it increasingly occurred to me that, well, you know, if you gave me $500 million in fees, I bet I could recreate a pretty incredible manager side, right, the GP side of this. And actually, I bet I could do it for a lot less than $500 million. And so that became an experiment that I ran internally, where I raised my hand to my partners who are amazing. And I almost can't believe that they said yes to this. But I said, I basically want to step away from everything that I currently do. And all I want to do is take a shot at building a direct investment effort inside InvestSure. And it was very much a punch card approach, like exceptions-based investing. We don't need to own a portfolio. We already have a portfolio of the best investors in the world. So we should only deploy capital if it seems clearly superior, the super high cost of capital. And I did that for my last five or six years there. And as Alice was retiring and we were beginning to think about what the business looked like for the next 10 to 15 years. I mean I I had joked with them always that they they basically were so kind to let me pursue a really selfish endeavor that I felt like if it worked could benefit everybody but ultimately you realize look if if we're giving at its peak the nomad guys 8 or 10% of our capital are we ever going to put that much into these ideas that I'm overseeing. And so We either need to make an all-in commitment to kind of expand this type of thing, or I need to figure out how I can contribute more value to the firm and not feel like I'm taking value. And I also feel like as succession's happening, I want to recommit myself for a decade. I don't want to have succession happen and then two years later leave and make it look like there was some problem, I disagreed, and I realized the path that I want to go on of challenging myself to grow in really different ways. Inside Investor, there were some incredible surface areas for that, especially around leadership and mentorship and business building. But it just turns out I love investing, you know? (laughs) And so I, I told my partners, I said, I think I have to leave and do this. And they were incredibly understanding and supportive. And we built out a timeline for that. And so I left at the end of 2019 to build out my own investment partnership, which is called LB Partners, as you know. And so LB is really meant to be a completely unconstrained approach to taking money and turning it into more money and starting with mine. And I have kind of the tagline for generational compounding. And part of what draws me to that is I want to put up the best 20-plus-year returns possible. And I think as you start to frame things generationally, the goal of putting up the best returns, it feels like you're also wanting to maybe reach for risk. But when you extend the time horizon, like all the low-probability risks begin to potentially show up. I want the best possible returns without taking stupid risks. So generational compounding, we're going to build it around my capital. I... Don't ever want to be reliant on the kindness of strangers, so to speak. And so while we do take in outside capital, I can talk about why I made that choice. The ethos is we're going to invest as if it's not just all my capital, but only my capital. And nobody's looking over our shoulder. And so what does that mean in practice? It means you're not going to put yourself in a style box. That also applies to public, private, et cetera. And so LB pursues anything I think I can get my mind around that doesn't distract from our mission of compounding in pursuing it. And we want to build everything based on the longest possible time horizon. And I think eliminating some of the principal agent conflicts and being the principal and the agent myself and being vertically integrated and being the person who's sourcing and diligencing and making decisions That was all core to what I wanted to accomplish. So our goal is put up epic returns over a 20-plus year timeframe and have fun
0: doing it. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. thirty-six thousand twenty-five and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm curious in those last couple of years at investor, and then now at LB, you worked with a lot of the best money managers you could find in the world. What did you learn from them and then apply to your own direct investing?
1: There's the joke in LP land that you don't just want to hire a guy, a Bloomberg and a dog. You want a team and you need institutional infrastructure and all that sort of thing. And it turns out that actually what I was very drawn to was a guy, a Bloomberg, and a dog. (laughs) And I actually think that is where the most special returns lie. And it doesn't have to be someone who has no team, but in small units where they are very, very synced up on this longer-term mission. So that was on kind of like the business structure side. I would say on the investment side, There's probably two things that I really underappreciated early on. One really is, I mean, you joke about the power of compounding as the eighth wonder of the world. I don't mean the compounding of returns necessarily. I mean the compounding of business performance and how it allows for you to pay up early and allow the business to earn into itself. So Amazon or Walmart would be great examples of that. And it's something that I keep failing at even now. That is one of the most important lessons and truly one of the hardest on board. And so I would say I saw the great investors. They are able to manage through that. And I think the way that the really great ones do it is that saying of looking for a great business on a bad day. It's how can I justify finding an on-ramp to a company that I can own for two decades but I don't feel like I'm paying nosebleed prices for it. So that would be, I would say, like one part of investment philosophy that came to me. And I I would say the other is, I really believe that if you can find a business that is going through transition, where it's becoming a greater and greater business, but its perception lags, that type of opportunity set, I think, is really hard to systematize from kind of a quant perspective, where the business itself in the future is going to look different than it did in the past. So I want to find things, and I think the best investors in the world who I admire, are looking for things that are non-obvious. Time horizon creates non-obvious outcomes, especially if there's a duration of compound. And then businesses undergoing transition, create non-obvious outcomes because there's so much fog of war that's happening during the transition period.
0: What's a good example of that? So on the
1: transition side, I have kind of a light framework that I call the swimming ducks. It's a duck swimming at the surface looks very still beneath the surface, lots of activity. So you could imagine a business, really obvious case would be US cable companies. They're now late stage in this but where they have some legacy business that is the perception of the company. So U.S. cable businesses, that would have been your TV video business. You subscribe to a cable TV package. That is in secular decline, at least from them distributing it to you. Then on the other hand, they've had this emerging growth business in internet connectivity, which is actually a superior business. And for a long time, if you break it into three stages... You've got this initial stage one where the decline of the legacy business is swamping the growth of the new business. It looks like the whole thing is going to die. You get to this middle stage where the duck is perfectly still because the two things are offsetting each other. And then in stage three, the new business is massively outstripping the declines of what is now maybe a less and less important business in the legacy part of the company. And so, I would say U.S. cable businesses today are pretty clearly in stage three. But for instance, I own a company, MoneyGram. And MoneyGram, small cap company, you know, caveat emptor, not an investment recommendation. But when I think MoneyGram, I think of the weak competitor to a business I already don't like, which is Western Union. You walk into a Walmart or a CVS where they have a MoneyGram desk, you've got $500, and you want to send it to your grandma in Mexico. So you take that $500 in cash or a check, you pay a $20 fee on top of it, you send it and she walks into a bodega or whatever in Mexico that's also a MoneyGram partner and walks out with the equivalent in pesos. That to me just seems obviously like a melting ice cube business. The world is moving to digital, whether it's crypto or PayPal, Venmo type solutions. And I remember it was about October of last year I just stumbled on a headline that said MoneyGram digital business growing over 100% for something like the eighth straight month in a row, 100% digital business at MoneyGram. And so that just opened up a series of questions for me. There's nothing to do there except learn a little bit more. And it turns out that MoneyGram inside itself has actually built a world-class fintech that is a digital payments business that a year ago was doing $40 million a quarter of revenue, $160 million a year. Today, it's doing $70 million a quarter, so $280 million a year. And so that type of thing where, yes, there is this melting ice cube of the big business, of the traditional business, but there is a rapidly growing fintech inside of it. You can easily picture how in three years, perception has shifted. That fintech digital payments business as a standalone company, probably trades for somewhere in the seven to 10 times revenue. MoneyGram, the whole company, trades for less than one times revenue. And if all, if all you did was put seven times revenue on just the digital business, the stock would be a double from here. And that would give no value to everything else. And so from my standpoint, that's the type of thing that you want to find where the transition is so cloudy and so easy for people to write off. It's a small cap. It's a legacy business. Bitcoin and PayPal are going to take over the world, Stripe. And yet you look at it and you realize, actually, it's the low price leader. It's rapidly growing. It's built out a sticky DTC business. And in the end, this is a scale dominant business because price matters and is very transparent. And so I think you can buy it with a value investor downside, but more of a growth investor upside. I love that type of framing. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where I think it's very easy for quant and systematic investing, or even just first glance investing to miss it totally.
0: I'm curious, when you had relationships with all these managers, and now you're doing this on your own, you're trying to come up with your own theses, independent ideas. How do you balance unsourcing ideas, knowing that there are a bunch of Phenomenal money managers that you have relationships with that have a portfolio of ideas that they think are fantastic, with trying to figure out where you're going to dive in for your punch list portfolio?
1: Maybe exactly like my first month at UVimco, where I decided to bring a manager to the table and I just had the foolishness, the believe in myself. I don't worry at all about the fact that there's tons of smart investors out there. When I started LBP, in addition to the fact that a bunch of my old partners from Investor have supported me here become investors, it turned out that actually a bunch of our old fund managers also wanted to invest. And I think maybe that speaks to the type of research and diligence and that last five or six years that investor, when I was overseeing a direct investment effort, we used to share ideas with our managers and they would share them with us. So I've never worried about the fact that there's other smart investors out there. However, I have absolutely tried to benefit from the fact there are other smart investors out there. So whether that's them as an idea source occasionally, but more likely them as someone who I can bounce Things off of and who can poke holes in my thinking. I think if you invest scared, it's going to be very hard to generate excess returns. And it is that funny thing about investing that I I don't know who said it first, but that the great investors live at the intersection of hubris and humility. You have to be arrogant enough to believe in yourself and your ideas and your research. And yet you've got to know that you're going to be wrong almost as often as you're right. And that set of trade-offs does not lend itself well to someone who's investing scared. You have to be confident and humble at the same time. And i like to think I'm walking that line reasonably well. We definitely have been punched in the face a few times and we've definitely had some big successes. You're going to get everything on the <laughs> on the range of outcomes and all the potential emotional baggage that comes with it. For me the heaviest bags are actually not when you're getting punched in the face, it's when you're succeeding. That's where I start to slip. You start to believe your own press clippings a little too much and might get a little bit lazy about buttoning down a question that's lingering in the back of your head. And so for me fighting that is harder for me than the other side of the equation.
0: I'm curious the difference between theory and practice when it comes to long-term investing and managing your emotions through tougher performance periods. So you start in a seat where you're evaluating money managers, you have belief and confidence in them, and you just see a negative print and you know the right reaction is to be supportive. How is that different when you are managing your own capital
1: you ultimately cannot control the emotions of others. In the moment that you described, where you see a manager put up, quote, a bad print, you can't control their emotions. You can't control your own client's emotions. But at best, you can try to manage your own and use that as a maybe a source of strength for the manager, maybe a source of strength for your clients. When you are now in that seat where you've got the client's and you are the bottom line, there's, I think, a little bit more intensity, potential stress that can come from that. And I think that it comes back to some of the early business decisions that I made. I mean, I structured LB with that moment in mind. We structured it so that I will always be the largest investor, right? So I've done great, but I I don't cut checks the size of investor or Yale. So while we run an institutional quality shop, we aren't going to bring in institutional money. And that means that all the people who are invested have a really one-to-one relationship with me where they are the principal. It's their capital. And I think that has really changed the type of conversations we have. Almost all of them are either successful investors themselves or successful business people. They're accountable to no one else, Uh, And so that is one decision we made early on with that kind of stressful moment in mind. I'd say another is, I used to joke when we were hiring money managers, they would say, look, you know, we're long-term investors. We invest with a three to five-year time horizon. And then they'd show me their fees. And I'd say, well, your incentive fee is is annual. You just told me you invest with a three to five-year time horizon. Like, Do we agree that it's called an incentive fee because it creates incentives? And I'd say yes. And it's well, how come just because the earth makes a trip around the sun, it means you should get paid. Like, why are we not aligning it more with your actual investment time horizon? And over time, actually, I think a number of the managers we were with, and of course, private equity and venture, I think does a better job of that, that alignment grew. And so when I built LBP, we intentionally built it with a multi-year measurement period. We built it with a hurdle so that if I'm having a down year or a down moment. In year two, and I was up in year one, well, our clients can actually begin to claw back some of what it looked like I might've been paid. So those kind of things to me, that like builds strength into the ecosystem because it aligns people's expectations and it aligns my promise with real on the ground behavior, whether that's good or bad. And so I would say like the, the rubber meets the road. It'll be someday when we're having quite a bad drawdown or something like that. But I thought a lot about that in the structuring upfront. I never want to be in the business of making money off my clients. I want to be in the business of making money with my clients. And even though we're small and we're closed, we're not trying to raise more money. I already have taken on the habit of beginning to waive part of our management fee just nominally every year. But I love the idea of saying, we don't need it all. It's your money. We want you to benefit. And I think if they do well, then I'll do well almost automatically. And that's just been the perspective and kind of ethos that I'm trying to build into our culture.
0: You talked at the beginning about the importance of focus and how that drives what you do. And I know in a lot of money management organizations, you look at the concentrated manager, you want them doing just one thing. Alongside of what you're doing with LBP, you've recently launched an ETF. And I'd love to hear the story of what that is, why you chose to do it, and how you think about that in the framework of focus.
1: I mean, I should step back with LBP itself is already two things at a minimum. So I have a view that in order to have long duration and play offense, the first thing to do is make sure that life is covered. I've two funds, one is more income oriented. And really all the goal of that fund is, is I filled it up with enough of my own capital so that I can live off the income it generates. And then everything else goes into playing offense and trying to compound capital. And my view was, if I never need the money that's in the offense fund, then I can really extend duration. So we have these two different vehicles. And my perspective is, I'm not going to be constrained by any typical style box, et cetera. And where we think we can make money, we're going to go make it happen. And whether that's in public stocks or private, or in this case, actually starting an index business, the Byte Index, B-Y-T-E. And the idea of it was, I think that digital infrastructure, which is in the Byte Index, is 40 digital infrastructure businesses. So think data centers, fiber, towers, cable, I believe that is the class A real estate of the 21st century. It's incredibly recurring, inflation protected, has secular growth, right? I don't have to pick whether Google is going to beat Facebook and building the metaverse. You know, I don't have to pick whether Ethereum is going to beat Bitcoin. No matter who wins, they need our digital infrastructure to grow. And so we sort of are a derivative that gets pulled along in the growth of that. So I actually conceived of this probably five or six years ago, basically looked at what was out there and thought it either didn't exist or was kind of garbage and said, that is exactly the kind of product that if I were in an institutional seat or if I were running a wealth management firm that I would love to have. It is real assets. It is infrastructure. It's inflation protected, but it has growth and it's not crazy prices. And so now coming back to LBP, how it fits, I think that's it's not only a product that I want, if other people like it, it could be a fabulous income producing business owning an index firm. And so I actually took a piece of the ownership of that index firm and just granted it to my fund investors. So the idea there is if we raise money for our partners who actually own an ETF and license the index from us. I actually, just to be clear, don't own the ETF. I own the index. There's a firm called Roundhill that owns an ETF that also uses the ticker Byte. If they raise capital, that pays us as the index provider, which pays my clients. I have tons of ideas for making money that are not necessarily going and buying the next great stock. And this just happens to be one of them. But I love the fact that I can do it in a way that makes me feel aligned, where if this succeeds, my clients succeed with it, right? So I only want to do things where I think my fund investors benefit, because that's where my money is. And that's where people who I love have come into my life in a professional way and have supported me. And so when I'm spending my time you know, talking about Byte, I want them to be the beneficiaries of it. And then I just think it's a fabulous product.
0: So what's the composition of the portfolio at LBP look like?
1: It kind of gets everybody upset. It's both too concentrated and too diversified. We probably own 60, 50 positions, very long tail of small things where we are still doing diligence or we started buying and it ran away from us or the purpose it serves is small. And we're too concentrated. Our top five positions are 70% of capital. Our largest investment is high teens percent of capital. And, you know, over time, that is a very strongly my preference is to have fewer, better positions. If I think about the process Every day, the goal is find the next thing that we can put 10 to 20% of our capital in. And if we find something along the way that doesn't quite fit that, but that we can get our arms around pretty quick, we're fine to put 1% or 2% in. Or it might be that we put 2% in on the way to understanding it well enough to put 10% in. But the real mission is go find those things that you can back up the truck on and that you're excited to own for years and years and where... With each new turn of the cards, you're sort of expecting it to get a little better and not a little worse. That's probably one of the areas where I could use the most improvement.
0: I guess I've watched most of your ride engaging in Twitter. (laughs) 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 Curious how you've thought about it and and what's happened.
1: Yeah. So as you know, I have an Anon account on Twitter. A lot of the magic of Twitter happens behind the scenes on DMs. And I have since become, I would say, very close with maybe... 10 new people in my network. I trust their insights. I trust their feedback. I share ideas with them. We meet in real life and uh, disclose who I am and really feel very blessed to get to know them. There's obviously some of the very best investors in the world are on Twitter publicly. Some others are on there anonymously. And then there's, I would say, again, a long tail of people who are just really, really thoughtful and want to engage. And I somehow have stumbled into accidentally having a reasonably big Twitter following. And it has its negatives. It's a very addictive product. It pulls me in. And I have people constantly who want to engage and send me ideas and give me feedback on ideas they know I have. So as with everything, its greatest strength is the flip side of its greatest weakness, which is the weakness is it's very engaging and addicting. The strength is if you're willing to engage with it in a thoughtful way, you can get tons of feedback and tons of thoughtful, smart people. I'm also somewhat new to it. I wasn't on Twitter really a year and a half ago. I got on during the pandemic. And then, as you know, I had this one tweet that went, unusually viral. And that led to, I I think I I went to sleep with 300 followers and then woke up three days later with 12,000 followers. That was a very strange experience.
0: (laughs) Why don't you describe what that tweet was?
1: The tweet was around some of the funky market mechanics that have been going on this year in 2021. And obviously this is the year of crypto and GameStop and AMC and NFTs and all this. And I think some of those topics have created so many questions in everyone's mind, but in particular, these are finance topics where the public is seeing them and saying, what is going on? And so on a particular one, I think I had a useful series of insights that helped illuminate some of the behind the scenes to the everyday person. And even I think was information to finance professionals and, For me, it was just a way of getting my own thoughts out. It kind of came out in a big blurt in an hour. It was a long series of tweets. And for whatever reason, people really connected with it, felt like it was very helpful.
0: I'm curious how you balance this, let's call it internal and external. So for the most part, your fund's closed, you're just doing your thing. You have this Twitter account, you're engaging, but it's anonymous. We're talking on a podcast, it's public. So how do you think about where you want to position yourself in this whole ecosystem?
1: I think my default has always been the sort of tall poppy mindset of the British and the Aussies. The tall poppy gets cut in the field of poppies. And so keep your head down and just do your thing. I very much like the low profile. I don't think you'll see me becoming a real regular in the podcast circuit. However, It has been such a shocking surprise going back to Twitter, sort of how much value I have received for just putting a little bit out there. I think there is a ton that I don't know and that I could learn. And I think by maybe having a slightly more willing exposure to expanding my profile through something like this, my hope is that it leads to engagement and ideas and feedback. That would be a massive home run for me. I mean, I don't have any LB partners, fundraising needs or desires. Obviously we have the bite index, which definitely want to get the word out there about it. But to me, this change in profile posture a little bit, it becomes very successful if it leads to relationships and feedback. And even you and I, we've known each other a long time, but... I would say it really deepened in the last year and a half. And I used to go into work every day and there were 40, 45 people there and they'd all be willing to tell me what I'm doing wrong. It's healthy to recreate a little bit of that and to see are there new pathways where I can get people who I trust and who I understand who are willing to push back and maybe make me a little better and who hopefully I can play that same role for them.
0: Great. Well, Chaz, you know, I can't let you go without asking a couple of closing questions. So here we go. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: I mean, I'm pretty boring because I managed to turn my actual hobby into my career. So outside of investing, I'd say UVA sports, passionate men's basketball fan, as well as other sports, and then philosophy and thoughts on free will. Those would be other areas of exploration I enjoy.
0: Any particular philosophy that most resonates on free will?
1: I am a big believer in free will. I would say a lot of the people that I admire would say that free will is an illusion. I disagree with that on an intuitive level, but also the story or metaphor that, you know, if you gave a million monkeys, a million typewriters and gave them enough time, they'd accidentally compose war and peace. I think if there's no free will, then we actually are those monkeys. This is all sort of some sort of magnificent coincidence where it began as a series of chemical reactions from the Big Bang. And now here you and I are talking in a way that was prescribed 10 billion years ago. I don't believe that. I believe somehow we are animated by something that gives us an element of freedom to make the next step. A lot of the there is no free will viewpoint says you can't explain why you're having the next thought that you have. And I say, of course not, because that would mean you have to be able to see the future. I think it all fits. But again, you know, that's just me and amateur hour.
0: All right. What's your most important daily habit?
1: Writing, whether that's journaling or writing letters. I love writing, <laughs> writing tweets, which forces concision. Although sometimes I find my way around that. Emails. I mean, I love the process of taking cloudy fragments of ideas that are in my mind and trying to put them on paper in a way that is clear and concise and complete. I also think it's an important part of deliberate practice. So if if you were a basketball player and you were playing a game, at the end of the game, you get video that you can go break down, you know, how'd you do, you know, did you show some tendency? To me in investing, journaling is probably the closest thing you can get to that. Where you can go back and see what was I thinking when I made that decision on that day. In addition to being a very relaxing, enjoyable thing for me, it's something I enjoy being able to go back and see what I was thinking when I made a mistake.
0: What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: I make this mistake all the time, or at least I violate my own pet peeve all the time. I can't stand it when people say something is five times smaller, when what they really mean is that it's 20% as big (laughs) <laughs> I don't. I don't think there's a mathematical concept such as five times smaller or ten times smaller. It's such a convenient way to say things, but it still raises the hair on the back of my neck every time.
0: How about on the investment side? What's your biggest investment pet peeve?
1: Go to the Munger idea of you know he quotes the algebraist Jacobi invert always invert. He says if I knew where I was going to die, I just wouldn't go there, which I love. And so when I was Early in my career, I made a list that was called How I Would Hire a Hedge Fund Manager If I Wanted Them to Blow Up. So, like, what are all the characteristics that they would have? It was very long, but I spoke earlier about the intersection of hubris and humility. I think it is such a fine line. So, my biggest investment pet peeve is both sides of that equation, and I find myself violating it all the time. So, on the hubris side, I'm a big believer in pride cometh before the fall. And I find myself being too prideful and too confident, and even in this conversation at times. And I view that as a very ugly trait of mine. And I don't like it when I see it elsewhere. And likewise, on the humility side, I think it is dangerous for people to possess a false humility or a misplaced disbelief in themselves. I think people have so much to offer. And so It's asking a lot for people to live right at the intersection of hubris and humility, but I really think that is the goal, both in investing and in life.
0: Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life?
1: There's a bunch that jump out who we've already talked about, Tim and Michael and some of my parents, my wife, but I would have to say Bruce Miller jumps out. I would have to say Alice and Hans West. So Alice Handy is... She obviously, she ran UVA's endowment for many years. She was our primary founder at Investure. She took a shot on me when I was 25 years old and asked me to help her found this business for some reason that I don't fully understand. She just has the most incredible intuition about people. And I think I learned to trust my own intuition a little bit more about people by seeing when we were lined up and when we weren't. She was almost always right. And she also is someone who the moment you meet her, you know that you can trust her. She is never going to screw you, ever. And I would like to think that I can exhibit that as well, that you come to the world a little bit vulnerable and willing to trust. And honestly, I think I would rather have somebody screw me over a hundredfold than vice versa. And so she errs to that side and I think it served her really well. And I learned a lot from seeing that with Hanson. Hans West is the co-chief investment officer of Investor. He and I didn't sit more than 10 yards apart from each other for probably 18 years going back to our UVA days. And he has so many amazing aphorisms. But when I think of all of this collection of little sayings and pieces of wisdom that he has, it's, I'll be looking at a problem from the South side and maybe a little bit from the East and the West. And then I talk to Hans and he immediately goes, Yeah, but have you thought of it from over here? Like if you were looking at it from the north, what you didn't realize is that all three investments you brought me in the last month, they all share interest rate sensitivity, even though none of them have to do with interest rates. He just sees the world in a different way that's incredibly powerful and mind-expanding for me. And another person whose integrity is just completely unimpeachable.
0: What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? I'll give you... Two
1: quick ones. One is when we first started Investure, I very much had the mindset, and I think we all did, that with venture capital, that if you're not with the best managers, you just shouldn't do it. And so we just didn't spend time on venture because the best managers were closed or maybe we could get a couple million dollars, but it wasn't going to move the needle. And in the end, that caused us to miss out on a new generation of managers that emerged. And so I would say there's a very fine line between a mantra and a dogma, and you risk taking a good idea and turning it into a terrible idea when you get attached to your initial thought. What's that saying? That the worst ideas seeds are in good ideas. And so I think it is correct that you want to be with the best venture managers and you've got to keep hunting. The second would be, I think I've learned a lot from looking at Amazon as a business. I mentioned the duration of Compound, but I always remember when I first joined Evimco, October of 2002, Tim gave me this stock pitch on a short that was the stock at $16. And the pitch was it would fall in half to eight. And that turned out to be Amazon. And it always stuck in my head because the pitch seemed so thoughtful. And if you looked at Amazon for the next 10 years, it didn't make more than a billion dollars. I think until 2015 or 16, it made maybe a little over a billion. And this year, it's going to make $32 billion. And in the meantime, despite the fact it looked like it was losing money and spending more on CapEx, even than the little bit of money that it was making, it never needed to raise outside capital. And so somewhere in there, there's a smoke signal that's telling you, hey, buried inside this accounting, there's a business that's generating a ton of cash flow because it's actually allowing us to fund our own growth at hypernormal growth rates for 15 years. And you think that um, accounting is sort of the Rosetta Stone of investing. And in the end, you realize, no, accounting is the exhaust. It's not the gas. And so you can't let it take over your mindset, you've got to think about what does the business actually do? And what is it going to look like in three, five, 10 years? So missing that and getting anchored to Amazon as a short is the most expensive mistake in my life. And I've still never owned it. And I would say even a decade ago, when it became obvious, I just kept saying, well, I've missed it. Even today, I feel like I missed it. (laughs) So I'm making the same mistake again, I'm sure.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: My parents fundamentally believe in the blank slate of people. When they meet someone, they are incredibly open and non judgmental toward that person. And even if they learn that somebody is not someone you want to have in your life, you would never hear them say a bad word about that person. I grew up in an environment where talking bad about someone behind their back just truly did not exist. And then when I hear it in real life now, and I'm sure that I do it myself, but when I hear it, it legitimately raises the hair on the back of my neck. And it goes back to the same thing I was saying about Alice earlier. I would much rather trust too much than not enough. They live that. They're just amazing, trustworthy, admirable people.
0: Chaz, I got one more for you. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: that the distance from age 20 to 40 is a lot shorter than the distance from age zero to 20. I have a belief that the only way you can experience time is as it compares to your prior experience to time. So when you're 10, a year going to your 11th birthday feels like forever. It's 10% of your life. When you're 40, it's two and a half percent of your life. And when you're 80, it's one and a quarter percent of your life right so in a sense your life is speeding up and so as much runway as i think that i have in front of me it actually risks being much shorter than it really is and so the idea that like there's no time to waste and you got to get after it like i am completely bought into that i don't want to look back at age 43 which i am now or age 44 and just think you know that one got away from me. there's no time to waste you got to get after it
0: chess